Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to just look at a single verse and, and really not even the full verse this morning. We're moving through the book of Hebrews and we're actually coming now to uh, really the application. Most of the epistles of the New Testament have uh, a lot of theology, a lot of doctrine, and then they move into sort of an application section and that's where we are. Really, Hebrews chapter 11 began that application as it, it called us to uh, endure in faithfulness. Uh, but, but look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Striving for peace in a contentious age. You know, I, I don't think there could be any doubt even if it, we weren't going through the election that we're, we, we've just come through that election season, I, I don't think there could be any doubt for us that we live in an age of strife and disharmony in, in our society. I think that this really is, is God's judgment on, on us. You know, for my entire life, I've grown up in church and I've, I've heard Christians and pastors talk about God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is coming if we don't if we don't turn from our sin. And, and I think I think sometimes we have a misconception about the judgment of God. We have a view of the judgment of God as if it's only some kind of cataclysmic event. So for a lot of people, they look at something like 9-11 or if there's some kind of war going on or a hurricane, natural disaster, and they say, that's the judgment of God. And, and certainly at some level it is. And, and yet there are often times in which the judgment of God is much more subtle to that, uh, but no less devastating. You see, God's judgment often comes... Uh, when he simply gives us over to our sinful desires. That's one of the worst judgments that God could give to any people is simply to allow them to fully embrace the sin that they've been living in. And the reason that is, is because sin brings destruction. Sin always brings destruction. When we choose wickedness, there's a sense in which it brings its own judgment about God doesn't have to bring in some opposing army to drop a nuclear bomb on us, or there doesn't have to be some catastrophic effect, uh, or rather we should say the, the catastrophic effects of sin that occur when societies throw off the restraints of righteousness and embrace wickedness are in some ways far more destructive. Let me give you a couple of examples of this really quickly. One, uh, when we throw off God's restraints of, uh, in terms of sexuality. God has given a design and a purpose and certain restraints for sexuality. And when a society throws off, of, off those restraints, uh, sometimes people think this is freedom, sexual freedom. Uh, but, but in reality, what we see, and we're already beginning to see it in our nation, uh, is that it really brings bondage and, and pain. It brings things like sex slavery. It brings depression and suicide. It brings sexual abuse. It, it perverts and corrupts all that should be sacred and wholesome and good. It tears families apart. God may take further action in judging our, our sexual sin, uh, but, but one of the greatest judgments on sexual sin is just the product of what it brings about. Or what about dishonesty? When, when a society embraces lying 
in, in dishonesty, one of the severest ways that God could judge that is simply giving people over to their sin. And we see that we're living in a society in which you can tell you can trust no one to tell you the truth. Right. That's that's the judgment of God. Don't wait for an earthquake. Don't wait for some uh, great catastrophic event. We're living in the judgment of God when when you simply can't trust anything that you see. What an awful judgment when integrity is rare or all but gone and you have no way of knowing the truth. When you go to the mechanic, is he is he doing the repairs that need to be done or is he overcharging you? When you talk to the sales rep or the customer service agent, are they telling you the truth or are they simply telling you what you want to hear? When you turn on the news, when you turn on the news, are you getting the truth? Are you getting the facts? Or are you getting their spin? You see, this is one of the judgments of, of God. We are at a point where we have so thoroughly embraced dishonesty, it's becoming nearly impossible to, to know what the truth is. And that is an awful judgment of God. Romans chapter 1 teaches that this really is the way that God judges people. The refrain in Romans chapter 1 is that God handed them over. God gave them up to their sin. It talks about sinful, wicked people, and, 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 and that's just the refrain several times through, Rome, through Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. Romans chapter 1 verse 28 is sort of the culminating point of that and it says this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased minds to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When God hands over a society to that kind of sin and the full embrace of that sin, that's not a society you want to live in. And that is, a sense, in a sense, God's judgment on the sin. You see, when you sow sin, you reap destruction galatians 6 7 is very clear be not deceived god is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth that also shall he reap and we are beginning to reap our sin this is true and i'm just making the the point in general but this is true in, in terms of of sins which rob us of peace things like hatred and and strife Listen again to that Romans chapter 1 passage and just listen to how many of those sins have to do with relational turmoil, with, with strife and, and hatred. There are things like, it says they are full of uh, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanders, and insolent. All of those are sins that, that come about, in, in a sense, because of hatred for, for others. Malice is an ill will or a desire to injure. Envy and covetousness is, is the desire, sort of a, a, a hatred that comes about because I want what you have. 
Murder is the fullest expression of, of hatred. And then there's strife, which is just contention. It's debate when we're always at odds with, with other people. Maliciousness, uh, I, I liked one definition that I found there of that word maliciousness. It's just meanness. Right. And and uh, I, I think that's fitting meanness. It's an evil disposition leading one to habitually uh, engage in malicious acts. And there's gossip and slander where we use our words to tear down others. And then insolent. That word insolent means uh, is one. A person who's insolent is one who insults with, with a sense of arrogance. Right. I'm looking down on you. I think you're so stupid. And so I just I just insult you all of the time. And, and here here's the point that I'm making is that when we continue to embrace sin, sins like these, one of the worst judgments of God is to say, OK, America, th this is what you want. You want to practice these things. I'm just going to take my restraining grace off of that and I'm going to let you go into those things insolence and malice and envy and strife and and gossip and slander i'm just going to let you go full-fledged into those sins and see if that's really produces life if that really produces anything that is good and, and what we're seeing in our society is that we live in a society of strife and enmity and and maliciousness and, and maybe you're living under a rock uh, but, but if you're in any way engaged with the world around you, I think all of us would readily recognize that is true. And, and if, you're, if you're really having trouble seeing that, let me just encourage you to go on social media. I probably shouldn't encourage you to go on social media, but do it just for a bit. Just get a taste of, of the insolence that, that is so prevalent, the, 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 the maliciousness, the ill will that is spewed toward other people all the time and people are just living their entire lives they're walking around with it and they're reading it and they're commenting and they're saying hateful and malicious things all the time their minds are filled with it we live in a contentious age this is part of just sometimes living in a sinful world listen to how the apostle paul describes humanity's sinful condition apart from christ in Titus chapter 3, he says this, speaking of ourselves who have been redeemed from it, but nevertheless, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice. Again, there's that, that, that desire to do harm to others, that, that ill will toward one another and we're just passing our days in malice and envy and then listen to this description here because i think this is very fitting for the day and time that we live in hated by others and hating one another hated by others and hating one another in other words Paul is describing here is just like a closed system in which I'm spewing hatred at you and it's just coming right back at me. And that's the world, I think, that, that we live in and, and I think it's prevalent in our society. As I mentioned, God's common grace can often restrain these things in a society. And, and he does. And often 
throughout our history here in America, there have been seasons of peace, right? There have been times where we may have disagreements, but, but, but we haven't been locked in such a, such a nasty, vicious kind of cycle of hatred and maliciousness and, and insolence toward one another. But now as we have continued to embrace this sin, as we have resisted God's prompting to turn and to repent, we, we are seeing the outworking of what happens when a society just embraces. And we are hating others and, and being hated. And I think we see that that is so descriptive. The question for us then, because do you see the passage this morning? It says to strive for peace with all. Strive for peace with all. With all. How do we do that in, in this day that we live in? We live in a contentious age. We, we live in an age in which there's so much vitriol. There's so much hatred. There's so much maliciousness. How do we strive as God's people for peace in an age of contention and divisiveness and strife and hatred? I want to think about that biblically as we, we come to this. And the first thing that I want to say is that we've got to simply recognize that peace is not always achievable. Peace is not always achievable. You notice here he says to strive for peace. The, the command implies, I think, that, that it isn't something that's always guaranteed. We strive for it. We, we work at it. But, but he doesn't simply say, does he, be at peace with everyone all the time. No, no. He says, strive for it. I think there's an implication there that, that you may work toward peace. You may desire peace, and yet peace may not be there. I like the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12 in, in sort of his uh, section uh, of application in that epistle. In Romans 12, 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Again, do you see that the Apostle Paul is recognizing there may be times when peace is not going to be had. But he's saying, as far as it depends on you, if it's possible, live at peace. I think there's at least a couple reasons why we may not be able to experience peace or achieve peace. Uh, one is sometimes people simply don't want to be at peace with us. Right? It takes two to, to be at peace. And we may desire it, we may strive it, but people may not want to be at peace with us. And the second reason is there are some situations that simply require confrontation. When sin is present, it, it must be addressed. And sometimes that disrupts the peace in the moment. And, and, and yet we must do that. And so there's reasons that peace is not always achievable. One thing we need to understand, even as we come to this topic, is that peace should not falsely be fabricated at the expense of holiness. Notice here, do you see how he connects these two things? Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. Uh, in other words, I think what, what we can take from that connection is, is simply that, that we should not discard holiness. We should not discard righteousness. We should not compromise principles from the word of God in order to try to make peace, right? That, that would be sinful, and, and there are some times when we stand in holiness, when we stand for righteousness, there are some times that peace will not come when we take that stand. One commentator said this, but that this does not mean peace at any price is clear from the link 
with the pursuit of holiness. Peace with all men is possible only within the limits of what is right. There are, in fact, times when standing for just causes brings intense antagonism and peace is inevitably shattered. But the meaning must be that every effort must be made to maintain peace, if at all possible. So when the world would pressure us to accept what is wrong, what is wicked, what is immoral, or else face conflict and strife, we cannot choose compromise in an attempt to have peace. Our peace with God should override even a sincere desire for peace with others. Just think about Jesus. Jesus modeled this well. He, he taught his disciples the, the same thing. Though he was, the Bible says, gentle and, and kind, yet there were moments when he embraced holy conflict right you think of the time when he went into the temple and turned the tables over in fact i think that happened a couple different times certainly jesus was very confrontational in the way that he approached the pharisees and some of the religious hypocrites of his day and i would challenge you to read the gospels and and to see that confrontation and then he said things even about us as his followers at times. In, in Matthew chapter 10, he says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set uh, a, a mother against her daughter-in-law and uh, a, a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and, and so forth. In other words, what Jesus is teaching there is that sometimes when you identify and when you align with Christ and when you stand for righteousness, you're going to put yourself at variance. You're going to put yourself at odds with other people. And sometimes there will not be peace because precisely because you are following Christ. Peace is not always achievable. But secondly, peace is not always unachievable. Peace is not always unachievable don't let what we have said lead you to assume that peace cannot be achieved in a wicked age this command that we are to strive for peace with all assumes that we have the ability to have peace we, we must strive for it it is challenging but we must strive for it precisely because it is a possibility even in a pagan world this command to strive for peace is a, is a command, it says, for everyone, for all people. So this isn't just talking about in the church, be at peace with other believers. No, it's saying be at peace with all people or strive for peace with all people. The same is true for Paul's command in, in Romans. And when you think about those commands in light of the New Testament situation, in light of the situation of those who received this letter, you recognize that it's kind of a surprising command. Just think about what we've said about the Hebrews. The, the recipients of the letter of Hebrews were people who were being persecuted by the world. There were people in Romans chapter 10 who some of them had been in prison. And, and it says also in, in Hebrews chapter 10 that some of them had had their property stolen or taken. Their, their property had been plundered. Many of them, very likely, because they had professed faith in Christ, had experienced some sort of rift or breaking of the relationship within their family. As, as, as when they embraced Christ as the Messiah, their, their Jewish families would have sort of ostracized them and, and not wanted to have anything to do with them. And so it's in that context 
that the writer of Hebrews tells them, strive for peace with all. Strive for peace with the world that has, has imprisoned some of your, your, your brothers and sisters. Strive for peace with the people who have plundered your property wrongly. Strive for peace with your family members who don't want anything to do with you because you're following Christ. The world of the New Testament was in every way as wicked as our own day, if not more so. Christians were hated, wickedness was embraced, and it was in that context that these commands to strive for peace were given. I take from that to mean that peace is achievable even in the midst of a pagan world. So while we recognize that peace is not always achievable in a fallen sinful world, let us not go to the other extreme then and, and deny the fact that peace is possible at all. It is. We're commanded to strive for it. And the fact that we're commanded to strive for it means that it must be achievable. Peace is achievable in the midst of a society. So how do we know then? When do we take this stand? And when, when are we to, to be over here and recognize that there, there has to be a stand for righteousness and that's going to break the peace? And, and when do we come over here and when and how do we recognize that this is a time to restrain my actions, restrain my words for the sake of achieving peace? Well, the answer is really that we need wisdom. Sometimes we've got to be willing to confront sin and, and engage in conflict. Other times we must reject it and uh, reject the urge to enter into conflict. And how do we know when the right time is? Well, we, we have to have wisdom. Wisdom really is the ability to know what to do in the right situation. What's the right response in this particular situation? I would encourage you to study the, the book of Proverbs. There's Proverbs that seem paradoxical, like answer not a fool according to his folly, and then the very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly. Well, which one is it? Well, it's both. Sometimes you do this. Sometimes you respond when somebody says something foolish. And sometimes you don't respond when, when someone says something foolish. How do you know when? You need wisdom. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the discernment to know wh what is the right answer. So when do I, when do I let things go and, and seek peace in this situation? And when is it time to stand up and, 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 and be willing to break the peace in order to stand for this righteousness? Well, sometimes... Uh, we, we need wisdom to, to know that. I think Jesus is our example of this. He's the embodiment of wisdom. Yes, he could speak very directly to the Pharisees and turn over tables at times, but he was also described as gentle and lowly of heart. Matthew chapter 12, quoting a prophecy from Isaiah, says this about Jesus. This is how he's described in Matthew 12, 19. It says, he will not quarrel, or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. So Jesus didn't sinfully avoid conflict. When it was time to stand for righteousness, he stood for righteousness. But at the same time, he was not a person who was marked by constant conflict. He was a person, it says, who would not quarrel or cry aloud. He wasn't someone who was always engaged in a fight. Often, I think, we as Christians fail 
to strike that balance. And we need wisdom. And I, I would confess that there are times that I feel like I fail to strike that balance well. We need to pray that God would give us wisdom. I think sometimes some, some are more willing to compromise truth just so everyone will get along. And I, and I fall in that tendency sometime. And, and maybe that's you as well. You know, I know what's right, but I'm, I'm not going to take this stand because it would just be easier if we just let everybody just, just go their, their own way. But sometimes we're called to turn over tables. Sometimes we're, we're called to say things very directly when it's the truth. But then others seem to relish conflict and fighting. They're never willing to restrain themselves. There are whole ministries that are built upon confrontation, Christian discernment ministries. This, in my thinking, is not in line with Christ. Yes, we will engage in conflict when it's necessary, but that is not the exclusive calling of any individual Christian or church or ministry. People who choose that route, in, in my opinion, are not being faithful. They're embracing really the spirit of this age, the spirit of conflict and strife, and they're wrapping it in a cloak of hypocritical righteousness. Well, I'm just standing for righteousness. No, your life is just filled with conflict all over the place, and we should not be marked by conflict. Yes, peace is sometimes unachievable, but it is not always so. Thirdly, we must genuinely desire peace we must genuinely desire peace we, we really have to be truly committed to peace if we're, we're going to strive for it we cannot see it simply peace simply as as something that's desirable you know if by chance we could have peace wouldn't that be so wonderful no no we have to truly want it we have to desire it you notice that it says to strive for peace that that's a word that is a very strong word okay it, it's a word uh it, it, it expressed something uh guthrie says of uh, of an eagerness of pursuit really the word literally is to follow after like you're chasing after something it's actually a word that is translated sometimes persecute persecute because the idea is you're you're hunting someone down you're you're following them you're following after them and that's what the writer of hebrews tells us that we're to do with peace we are to hunt it down we're to follow it we're to pursue it that's a very strong word that pursuit is really a common refrain when it comes to this issue of peace it actually comes uh, from psalms both Paul and the writer of Hebrews both seem to be alluding to Psalms. I believe it's 34, Psalm 34, uh, which says to seek peace and pursue it. And Paul says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Doesn't that communicate a strenuous effort? If you're striving after something, you're working for it, you're, you're chasing it down. In other words, what we need to recognize is that peace doesn't just happen. And, and that can't be our approach. If we can be at peace, then I'm good with being at peace. But if we can't, then I'm fine with that. No, no, no. We have to want peace because in order to strive for it, in order to work for it, it's got to be a desire that is in your heart. Peace doesn't just happen. It must be worked for. Calvin says men are so born 
that they all seem to shun peace. For all study their own interest. They seek their own ways and care not to accommodate themselves to the ways of others. Unless we strenuously labor to follow peace, we shall never retain it. For, it, for many things will happen daily affording occasion for discords. This is the reason why the apostle bids us to follow peace. As though he had said that it ought not only to be cultivated as far as it may be convenient to us, but that we ought to strive with all care to keep it among us. That kind of effort really only comes when you truly have a longing and a desire for peace. We must desire peace, but secondly, uh, we must work for peace. This idea of striving indicates that, that we must have a genuine desire, but that that desire must begin to take action. We must do things to work toward peace. So how do we work for peace, especially in an age of contention? What, what are the things that we can do to work toward peace? Let me give you a couple uh, this morning as, as we move toward an end of this. The first is this. We need to trust God to do justice and to bring about righteousness. And this will free us to love. Often, those who cannot imagine any sort of peace with unbelievers and those uh, who, who view it, are rather those who view it as their responsibility to bring about righteousness. In other words, what I'm saying here is often the source of contention comes when we take it upon ourselves to feel like we have to be the ones that make sure righteousness happens, that, that we have to sort of be the judge, that we have to be the one who, who executes this judgment of God. Listen, it isn't our job to secure society of all its evil. When we take up that mantle, we necessarily take on an attitude of hostility to the world. Judgment and punishment and vanquishing of evil is not your prerogative. Yes, we, we mourn when we see injustice, when we see immorality, when we hear about things like this and, and just the abortion culture that is so prevalent in our world. Yes, we mourn it for those things. Yes, there are certain things that we can do to work to try to bring those things to an end, but it isn't ultimately our responsibility to fix those things. We need to recognize that judgment belongs to the Lord. It's His work. Romans chapter 12 is a passage that I think helps, helps us understand this. Romans 12, 14. This is the same passage where we get the command to be at peace as, as much as we can, but listen to the surrounding verses of, of that command. Romans 12, 14. It says to bless those who persecute you and do not curse them. That's one way to be at peace with the world. They're going to be persecuting you. Yes, there's a sense in which they're against us. They're, they're against righteousness. Absolutely. So what do we do? Let's fight. Let's, let's take them down. Let, let's make sure that we see to it that righteousness is exalted. We've got to do everything that we can to fight back. No, no, no. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
nor be wise in your own sight. Now listen to this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, that's what we're called to do. You, you see how that, that, that command to, to, as much as it's possible, be at peace with all people? Do you see how it's sandwiched between two uh, commands or two prohibitions from us seeking to get vengeance for ourselves? Listen, when wrong is being done, we don't take vengeance into our own hands. We trust it to the Lord. That's His. Did you hear what He said? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. When we see righteousness and wickedness in this world, there, there's a sense in which we want to take it into our own hands. We've got to right this wrong. But that's not what God says. God says, no, no, no. That's my job to right wrongs. It's my job to take vengeance. It's my job to take care of your enemies. This is what I want you to do. Be at peace as much as possible. Be at peace with, with all men. Don't repay evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable. Don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Instead, if, you're, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him, give him something to drink. That's what we're called to do. That's one of the ways that we as Christians can strive for peace in an age of contention. Everyone else in the world is being hated by the other side and, and they're spewing hatred. Christians, we've got to be different. That's not the life. We're no longer locked into that cycle of, of hating others and being hated. We, we, are, we are to be those who are returning kindness when evil's done to us. We, we are to be those who are blessing those who are cursing us. Don't repay evil. And why do we do that? Are we saying, are we just giving up on the idea of justice? Are we just giving up on the idea that, that right will be done? No, no, no. Right is going to be done. Justice is going to be achieved because God is the judge. He, it's going to be in his hand. And, and everything is going to be perfectly adjudicated. Every wrong is going to be righted. But let him do it and not us. We need to seek peace. The second thing that I would say in this is that we must submit our desire. We must submit our desires to the sovereign will of God and peacefully wait for him to act in his time. James chapter 4 verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights? Is it not this that you have passions? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James locates the source of our conflict in our desires. Anytime there's a conflict, whether it's relational in marriage or family, or even at a broader sense in society, you, you could ask this simple question, what do I want? What do I want? And right there, when you answer that question, you're giving the source of that conflict. 
And listen, here's what we need to understand. Sometimes those things that we would respond, I want this, sometimes those are sinful things and we just need to discard them. Sometimes those things when we would answer, I want this, can be good things. We want righteousness in our society. We, we want a world and, and we want to live in a country that does what is right and what is fair and what is just. Is that a good desire? You better believe it, but it becomes a sinful desire when we are willing to disobey God in order to try to achieve it. When we say, no, no, God, vengeance isn't in your hand. Judgment isn't in your hand. I'm taking it into my hand. I'm going to make this right. That's when it becomes sinful. God is sovereign. He governs all things. How foolish of it, how foolish of us is it to think, I want, I want to see righteousness, therefore I'm going to sin against God in order to try to achieve righteousness in this world. Do you see how that's upside down? Well, I'm going to sin against God. I'm going to say hateful things and I'm going to disobey what God tells me to do because I want justice. Oh, you're sinning against God in order to bring about righteousness. That, that is foolishness. Anytime we're willing to sin in order to bring about our desire, uh, that, that's a problem. So what sin must we reject in order to pursue peace? Well, we've got to reject any forms of hatred. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 through 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you, put away from you, along with all malice. Put it away. Those of you who are on Wednesday nights, you know that passage. We're putting off the old self. That's who we were, and, and we are to be putting those things off. Listen, Christian, no matter what's going on in our world right now, you are not to give way to bitterness and to wrath and to anger and to clamor and slander and malice. Put those things off. We need to get rid of them. We need to, as verse 26 says of that passage, there's a time to be angry, right? But verse 26 of Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And so we need to put those things away. We need to get rid of any wicked speech. Verse 29 of that same passage says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear our words. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be tearing people down. Uh, they, they shouldn't be uh, like weapons, like arrows that we're shooting at our enemies. Listen, we, we're not to do that. We're to put those things away. Don't let any corrupting talk coming, come from your mouth. And then thirdly, we've got to get rid of any sense or any desire for vengeance. We've got to entrust that to the Lord. Let Him take care of judgment. And we've got to be faithful to what He's called us to do. Listen, we cannot fall into the trap of sinning in response to the sins of others. God will judge the world, but He will also hold us accountable for our actions. And that needs to be our concern. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we, we pray, O oh Lord, even in a wicked and a contentious and divisive age that we live in, in which people are hating others and, and being hated, 
We pray, Lord, that you would help us by your grace, through your spirit at work within us, rise out of that mess. Lord, help us not be locked into that system of hatred and vitriol, but, but that we would love those who are our enemies, as Christ taught. What a, what a difficult thing for us, Lord. We, we pray that you give us grace to do that. We cannot do that on our own. We need your spirit at work within us. We, we pray that for those who are cursing us, we pray that you would give us the grace that we need to bless them. And God, we entrust our situation, whether it's, whether it's our society that we're thinking about or whether it's an individual relationship in, in our lives, we pray that you would help us just hand that over to you and entrust you with that situation. You're the judge, and we are not. We confess that to you today, and we ask for the grace that we need to live as you've called us to live and to seek peace. We pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.